verses 2 through 3. 1 Peter 5, and I'll be reading verses 2 through 3. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of Father, we thank you for the Sabbath day set apart for us, rest and worship. As we approach your word this morning, we pray that you would give us attentive hearts, attentive minds. You would guide Pastor Adam as he shares with us what he studied. We pray that we would be receptive to the teaching of your word, that you would help us to eliminate distractions in our minds, that your Holy Spirit would empower us to receive the preached word from it, but grow by it. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning we arrive at Peter's final warning which directs the elders concerning their service in the church. And not that elders would take themselves Seriously, we mention this at our visitor brunches or visitor lunches or whatever it is where we connect with visitors, considering their attending Redeemer more seriously and considering even membership within this body. There is a distinction of elders who take themselves too seriously versus elders who take the office and what it is they are to do as elders seriously, and we hope to be the latter. And so we've taken time to walk through this very carefully of 1 Peter 5 in the exhortation that Peter has to the elders. Again, it's a bit introspective. It equally is for a minister or the staff or session as you present a sermon, you surely consider the sermon that you write. And so it is applicable to us and our sessions discuss this at our meetings of how are we performing? How are we modeling? these behaviors and these exhortations within First Peter. And we arrive at yet another serious exhortation to our session here at Redeemer. And it's open for you to consider your relation to us, your session here at Redeemer. It's the call, as Peter says, to resist, men, resist the temptation and avoid the behavior of being domineering. We need to define domineering, and we will get to that in just a moment. But I mentioned that I introduced last week the importance of examination and ordination for elders in the ministry. I think here is yet another reason why we should have a high view of examination and ordination in the church for our elders. Because again, the process of selection is important for the church and its ministers to consider to call and establish and affirm another ministry, minister in his calling. The way we express the motivation for the ministry. We should take this very seriously in the process. Remember, as Paul, we've considered several times, Paul tells young Timothy in 1 Timothy 3, which then is the pastoral epistle applicable to the entirety of the church. Surely, too, is 
hope invested in the church takes seriously all of your life in it and your relation to its ministry. So it's not just to me or to Dan or to our session that Paul writes to you, the church, in your consideration. First Timothy 3, a man may have the desire to serve. Indeed, he has the desire. He is willing. He desires a noble task. But then you remember the following verse 2 throughout chapter 3 is the qualification to consider against his willingness. Meaning, not simply desire alone, which qualifies a man to act. He still did desire it. He desires noble things. There is more and can be well beyond desire that the church must consider in relation to him going to his daughter. His daughter is the beginning of his desire, but he must be examined. What should a minister be examined? Again, Peter says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder. How must an elder be examined? He must be examined. Surely we take it very seriously that he must be examined on matters of doctrine. And yet again, as we're often reminded as ministers, Paul certainly has no doubt that he had all the faith. But his character is different. So when you look at Timothy, and it's well in beyond chapter 3 and into chapter 4, you see the process for Timothy being examined in matters of doctrine and the faith that has been trusted to him. How well does he know it? How effectively can he communicate it? Then also Timothy's character is examined. And all of this is examined in Timothy in chapter 3 and chapter 4. And then in chapter 4, verse 10, after examination, we read, as Paul says, counsel of elders laid their hands on him. And the act of the elders then laying their hands, or as Paul says, the counsel of elders, the counsel of presidents laid their hands on Timothy. They thereby ordained Timothy to the office of elder. Why do I bring this up once again? Just to remind us of the important as we look at the text of 1 Peter 3 and the portion we're in this morning, where we will conclude tonight, verses 3 and 4. But it's important to note them in the exhortation, because the exhortation to not be domineering follows the instruction regarding the ministerial You see, the ordering is purposeful. Thus, the role of setting a man may indeed be willing to undergo the office of elder. He may willingly volunteer. It is odd when you're serving as pastor. And yet, knowing the examinations that are coming, both the written and the oral and the examination, the setting of my character and the asking of probing questions, I am willing and yet I will endure. Yet the portion in the text of chapter 5 makes clear his willingness to serve and undergo the difficulty of examination, perhaps it is not for the sake of serving at all. But it is for the sake of ministry. Or, as Peter calls it, it is for the sake of glory over the sake of ministry. 
um, service God would have you, uh, willingly service God would have you, not the shameful game, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your power. The term translated domineering there regarding elders in the church, um, again, we need to be careful with and clarify and define sometimes the label of domineering can take in people in the It can add the dominance or a sheer force that rules upon another. But domineering does mean something. It's not simply an emotive response where someone has a disagreement with their session. But their session is now domineering because they resist the criticism or they haven't heard me fully or we're in some sort of verbal disagreement ergo they're dominating us. They're domineering the term domineering here in the text is literally rendered lorded over them. So listen to the text. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Do not lord over those in your charge. But in contrast to lording over, be an example. You see, here the individual is the willing man to rule in the capacity of elder. Hardship with ruling from the position of desiring honor and reputation doesn't manifest itself in the church in a kind of spiritual or pastoral spirit. So you'd be able to bet well within the ministry here at Redeemer or any other church that you would attend or be members to, you'd be able to recognize is that dominant and domineering self over just briefly at our Lord's words in Matthew. If you have your text open, look over to Matthew 20. Just briefly, I'll just cite to you the text in contrast to domineering. How should a, should a session behave? How, how should membership and pastors get on together? How should the minister then, if he's not going to act domineering and impose spiritual standards and tyrannies in sake of expansion of reputation or honor, what must a session what, what is the example our Lord gives in Matthew chapter 20, beginning in verse 25? And, and you know the dispute earlier in the text is the issue of who gets to sit at his right hand and his left within the kingdom. Who has the seat of honor? Verse 24. But when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers for the entire congregation. But verse 25, our Lord then speaks as Peter then would follow up to the church. called them to him and he said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles, that is, those in other arenas of warfare, those outside of the church, how do they behave? They lord it over them. That is, they act dominating. And, and their great ones, they exercise authority over them. 
But yet we remember the time isn't an authority at all. It is a kind of a domineering, or as you just said, a lording over them authority. A tyranny. Verse 26, in the church, as Peter would speak in 1 Peter 5, so our Lord, it shall not be so among you as a counter society, but whoever would be great among you in the church must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. But what is this example we're called to follow? How do we know if we're performing these tasks reasonably within the church? Verse 28, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And then the ultimate act to give his life as ransom for many. Stand upon service and tyranny in its context. So Peter, building on that conversation that he knows, this is how the counter society, the church, is to be used. There is order. There are offices. There are officers who fill those offices. But what must the ethics be and the interaction be in this counter society? It must be one of service, and it must exist dominance. Pushing forward in ways that impose will upon that service. The question then to ask ourselves for a few moments what would such tyranny look like? So, if we define domineering in terms of not a disagreement or a verbal disagreement or not obeying the congregation or the congregation not strictly obeying the, the session, but we're in an issue of domineering. I can, I can sense the power dynamic is one of lording over. And, and so we say, well, how do we know that? Well, we be able to define lording over in terms of spiritual tyranny. Well, okay, what would such tyranny look like? Well, we know indeed this is what we're dealing with. The answer, if we just briefly define it, I would define it this way, such tyranny or dominating behavior which Peter expressly prohibits for a session for its elders, its teaching elders, its ministers, such tyranny or dominating behavior can be seen when ministers are guilty of exercising self-promoting Again, how do we know that this is this fact or this section we're experiencing is one of domineering disobedience to a direct question. And not, I think it's clear, you did it wrong. And, and you were losing on that question. How do we know, know this, this is truly like a, a wrong dynamic of power being used against the church by a minister or a session? I would suggest that tyranny or domineering behavior can be witnessed when ministers are guilty self-promoting or self-serving authority. How would we determine that? Would we take this one more step? We can determine what seems clearly self-promoting and self-serving authority when the end or the goal for such imposed ministry is the expansion of the ministry's Reputation 
gifted to us so that God can help us grow with you in using us to work in the kingdom the way that that without a doubt that you're the person who is taking us to the place of directing us that you are equipping us so that I'm able to do what I'm called to do by you and that Christ is with us the temptation the literal power that is that every day brings one commentator, one commentator makes this statement. He says, to clarify, the under-shepherd is not a stand-in for the Lord. He presents the word of the Lord, not his own decision. He enforces the revealed will of the Lord, not his own will. For that reason, any undermining of the authority of Scripture turns church government into spiritual truth. If we step outside of the human definition for a moment to consider the church more broadly, let's get the human kingdom context just so we can speak to it. I think if I were to find the church, I think there's two kind of polar elements to spiritual form that come and seem to always be with us. In the church, and it's spiritual change that I hope the human understanding today is lacking. I think, on the one hand, there's a spiritual tyranny of legalism in the church. A place where we create micromanaging rules to get people to do things that we want, to isolate them from attending any other church because they have to attend here in order to get a right return on their investment. We create micromanaging legalism in the church, and it's a tyranny that always comes from Christ and Christ alone. It doesn't help someone realize that the end product is finding their content in ungodly religion. There's a tyranny in the church at one end of legalism, and yet there is also a tyranny at the other end, a spiritual tyranny of legalism. We hold back people, people captive, so that we refuse to speak and preach on things one hand, we can be legalistic, binding conscience to our Christ to set them free, and on the other hand, we can have a tyranny of unfairness, a tyranny that stems from our chosen identity from the Christ that we have in Christ. If there's pressure on the church to be complete in all kinds of areas, then it is that way. Right? And we know this from our tyranny of legalism. What is reasonable evidence? How can you assess where is the cancer that is spiritually killing the church? I think one great way to decide is to minister to the people of the Christ that we have in Christ. It is a means whereby we know and we know and we've done this for a long time. When we start at one church house and we go over the world and see the world, and we get to see things that we have in the area that things that we can't go around with, we can't go by it, we've got to go through it. That's just it. You, you can't, here, here's where we want to be. Here's where we are. We can't go around it. We can't go over it. We can't go under it. We gotta go. And the church is together and we're beating time through it. It's at their end. If this church is, is at their end, they're supposed to be the church that is at our end. We're going on their end. That, that's the idea of faithful tithing. You can avoid tyranny by handling it as 
common adherence to their conviction. And they see either your scripture or your glory or your life. Herein lies either weak or it is not. Our conscience ought to be liberated and powered by the power of the Holy So it is the minister or under shepherd who can speak the word of the Lord out of their mouth. Further, you notice that whenever prohibitions are given, as we did with the third commandment, in each catechism, wherever prohibitions are given in the text of Scripture, either implicitly or explicitly, our Lord requires the pursuit of the right or the good. It's not simply enough to not murder your parents. Well, my logic says to murder your parents. No, no, no. He should say, honor your mother and father, right? Because remember, the next violation would be murdering them. You can't do that. Thou shalt not murder. Right, that would have to be something that everyone would where, where, where there is a prohibition, you can't do this, it's not enough to reward the Consider the text of the minister's fear. You are not to minister how? Under compulsion. No, don't be pushed into service by outside forces. How should I then serve willingly? It's not enough to simply not do it under compulsion. Do it willingly. Another prohibition in the text. Don't pursue shameful gain in ministry. What should I pursue? Eagerness of service. It's not enough to not be domineering, Peter says. The question necessarily to ask of the example is, what is the proper example to minister? As your session here, as you members there, as you evaluate together this text and we think, okay, great, so we should, we, we should be willing as God would have us, we should not be pursuing sample gain, we should be building, we should be eager, not for dominance over the people or domineering over the people, dominating them, lording over them, but instead we should be examples. Well, what is that example? The proper example for the under-shepherds here, for all under-shepherds within the church, the proper example for the minister to follow and to set forth to others is the example set for each of us. I want to conclude with that in our time together by examining just a few thoughts from John 10. Would you please turn to John 10 if you have your text with you to consider the example of the minister? In the metaphor of shepherding, again, it's not enough that he simply doesn't create an atmosphere of spiritual tyranny. It's not the absence of dominance, but it is the gain that translates. We consider what is it to be a shepherd. What is the example that the ministers will not appropriate personally, but they must pursue in some degree of honoring God? It is the example of Christ, the good shepherd. Look at the text with me. I'll briefly read 11 through 15, and we'll jump back into comments by Lord here on Peter's application to the example of what Christ demonstrates the good shepherd. Verse 11, I am the good shepherd. So, so again, you're drawing your mind to the attention that Peter uses the metaphor, shepherd, flock. How must we do so? By looking to Jesus as good shepherd. Verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. 
He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not, uh, uh, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep. He flees, and the wolf attacks them, scatters them. He flees, that is, because he is a hired hand. Okay, so. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. You see, Christ is the good shepherd who, in love and righteousness, shepherds his flock. To follow Christ as under shepherd here. Numbers, especially here as redeemers, for us to be men who resist the temptation to dominate or pursue shameful gain or, or, or are not doing so in service from compulsion but willingly, we must pursue the example set for us by Christ, who is the Good Shepherd. This is what Peter referred to earlier in our text where he says, Clearly, how? Well, you know how. As God would have it. How would God have you say it? Consider then Christ's shepherding of the flock in terms of Peter's exhortation. Just briefly reading John 10, you see it is Christ who exercises oversight, never by compulsion, but willingly, as the flock will have. Look at verse 17. For this reason, this is Christ exercising oversight, not by compulsion, but willingly. Verse 17, for this reason the Father loves me. What do you mean? Well, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Verse 18 clarifies. No one takes it from me. But I lay it down out of my own accord. Again, minister. I exhort you, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Not under compulsion, but as Christ willing. What is it that can fulfill the unwilling duty and pour that willingness out upon us? It is this Christ. Again, this is what Peter ministers home to Christ is not visible. But there needs to be some measure of approximation. Secondly, as we consider Christ and the exhortation of Peter to the elders as we, the session, and you would consider as we must all look to Christ, who is the Good Shepherd, it is Christ who cares for the sheep. How does He care for you? How do we consider Christ's eager love and care for the sheep? Christ never pursues Look at verse 9 and 
door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. And we'll go in and out and out and out. You see, the thief comes only to and steal and kill. Anyone who loses that doctrine will not be
they turn to pastors and false doctrines. But we are not called to set apart those who will do the will of God. To do the will of God. 